welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now please join your host, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Well, welcome back to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. Today is February 23rd, and we're going to look at Exodus 4 today. Uh, Just as a reminder, every day I read from one chapter of God's Word. So today we're going to look at Exodus chapter 4, and then I offer a brief explanation of key ideas, themes, and theology very briefly. My goal is to get you into God's Word for about 5 to 20 minutes every day. So let's get to our reading today from Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4 says this, Then Moses answered, But behold, they did not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is it that's in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it to the ground. And so he threw it to the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. And so he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of uh, Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak and when he took it out behold his hand was leprous like snow and then God said put your hand back inside your cloak and so he put his hand back inside his cloak and when he took it out behold it was restored like the rest of his flesh if they do not believe you God said or listen to the first sign they may believe the latter sign if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground but Moses said to the Lord O my Lord I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant but I am slow of speech and of tongue and then the Lord said to him Who has made man's mouth? Who made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send somebody else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you will do the signs. Now Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are, were seeking your life are dead. And so Moses took his, his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh and all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. 
Now at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her, her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And so he let him alone. And, and it, then, it was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their head and worshipped. Well, this is our reading today from Exodus chapter 4. In verses 1 through 17, we see the narrator giving a dialogue between God and Moses regarding the signs that he's going to perform before Israel. And the Pharaoh is framed by the reference that will bring Moses' staff into focus in verses 2 and verses 17. Now, the staff serves as a sign that God will be with Moses and bring about what he has accomplished through him. So in verses 3 through 9, what we see is that three signs, which are the extent of the Lord's power, and even prefigure the realms of the plagues to come. Creatures of the earth staffed uh, a serpent, and people's Moses' hand becomes leprous, and the elements of nature are water to blood. Verses 3 through 4, a staff turning into a snake was not a normal part of Moses' experience, and his initial response Hit running is a natural and even a sensible response. And yet, since it is the Lord who had instructed him, the otherwise foolish response of picking up the snake by the tail in verse 4 becomes not only sensible, but also faithful as well. In verse 5, although God states that the signs will be given so that Israel may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, has appeared to Moses, they are also intended as confirmation of Moses himself. Now, in light of the Lord's gracious response to his questions, for which he has not been reproved up to this point, Moses is also responsible to act faithfully in response to what the Lord has promised about his purposes for Israel. In verses 10 through 12, we see the Egyptians' magicians acted as Pharaoh's advisors and were even known for being proud of their considerable power of speech. Now, when Moses protests that he is slow of speech, and of tongue in verse 10, he is raising a relevant concern that if he is going to address Pharaoh and his court, and as the Lord signifies in making Moses' hand leprous and then even restoring it, he has power to work in and through that which he created, including Moses' mouth in verses 11 through 12. In verse 14, the Lord has not reproved Moses for his questions, but has responded by revealing his purpose and his person. And when the narrative states that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, it indicates to the reader that Moses was also responsible for doing what the Lord had told him. And still, the Lord accommodates Moses by granting Aaron as a spokesman, while also continuing to call him to lead Israel out of Egypt. Verse 16, he shall speak. Now, the instructions of Moses and even Aaron here, it describes the responsibilities of a prophet that we're going to see in Exodus 7, 1 through 2. One who is called to speak exhaustively and even exhaustively to all the Lord reveals, as we're going to see in Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 22 and 1 Samuel 3, 17 through 20. 
A prophet is both a recipient and the deliverer of the message, typically of God's message. But in this case, Aaron is a recipient and even the deliverer of Moses' message. And so when God says that Moses shall be as God to Aaron, he is calling both of these men to faithfulness and their respective roles of relating what he reveals to the people of God. And so even from his upbringing, Moses was likely already familiar with somebody being the mouth of another person. In ancient Egypt, there was a high official called the mouth of the king, whose job was to mediate between the god Pharaoh and the people of Egypt by speaking Pharaoh's words unaltered to the people. In verses 18 through 31, Moses returns from Midian to Egypt. And now this section, it's brief, but it's significant for what it shows in the transition from Moses' exile in Midian to his return to Egypt. In each subjection, there is a focus on the Lord's masterful speech or action. And so he informs Moses that he can return to Egypt in verses 18 through 20, where he reminds Moses of his call before Pharaoh and even foretells the outcome in verses 21 through 23. He seeks Moses' life in 24 and 26 of this chapter, and he sends Aaron to encourage and even assist Moses in, in verses 27 through 31 of this chapter. In verse 21, I will harden his heart. The heart refers to the whole of the intellect, the will, the emotions in which a person has. And the various Hebrew verbs used here to describe the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, they all refer to a desire to act contrary to the Lord rather than in accord with him. And the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is referred to throughout chapters 4 through 14 of this book of Exodus, with the implication being that Pharaoh is responsible for his own actions. The Lord here states that it is his sovereign hand that ultimately governs all events. This is also indicated by the recurring, as the Lord has said in Exodus 7.13, Exodus 18.18, Exodus 9.12, and Exodus 9.35. And although one might conclude if the Lord hardens somebody's heart, the latter is not answerable for his actions. This is actually not a biblical view. And certainly here, the narrative is also careful to point out that Pharaoh also harden his own heart as in Exodus 8.15, Exodus 8.32, and Exodus 9.34. The sinner remains responsible for his sin, as we see in Romans 9.16-18. In Exodus 4.22-23, what we see is Israel had been in Egypt for over 400 years, as we see in Exodus 12.40, and the people were enslaved for the better part of that time. This meant they had no possessions or land to pass on as an inheritance. And when the Lord instructs Moses to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn, he's indicating that he has remembered his covenant with Abraham and he will bring his people to the land promised as an inheritance to their father. And he's also asserting Israel's true identity, which extends back to a time and relationship that predates the many years that they have been in Egypt's service, a claim that Pharaoh will ignore to the peril of his own and all of Egypt's firstborn, as we see in Exodus 12. Uh, 29 through 32. Israel as a whole is God's son, and all the individual Israelites are sons, as we see in Deuteronomy 14.1. In verses 24 and 26, we see the events narrated in these verses are significant, not only for what they tell, but also what they show. Not only has the Lord remembered his covenant promises, but his people are called to remember the conditions of the covenant. Moses is held responsible for the provisions of the covenant with Abraham that require him to circumcise his son and so a failure to be circumcised it may lead to being cut off 
Now, Moses' failure to circumcise his son could have led to his death had it not been for his wife's actions. And so once again, Moses' life is preserved through the actions of another, this time through his wife, Zipporah. Verse 27. And so Aaron is to meet Moses at the mountain of God, which is also the place where Moses first received the call to lead Israel out of Egypt and which they have come out and will become a sign that it is God who has brought them out. Every Christian should desire to be useful to the Lord and to resolve to use their mouth to bless uh, other people with speech that is uplifting and seasoned with grace. And so if you're like me and you desire to do more of that, here are some points worthy of consideration that we see not only in this chapter, but in the whole Bible. First, simply admit that in ourselves we do have weaknesses. Our tongues and our mouths are not as eloquent as we like, and we probably will never be as eloquent. We'll, we'll have stumbles. We'll fail and, and, uh, to enunciate or um, you know, to say things in a clear way. And so let's m be clear about that and let's admit it. Second, meditate often on the promises of God in the Word of God. One of those promises is 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's why we need to trust the Lord as we're talking, as we're communicating His truth and the gospel to other people. Uh, 2 Corinthians eleven six kind of touches on this. For the sake of Christ, therefore, I am content with weakness. This is one of which was Paul's lack of eloquence. God loves to use weak instruments and use them for his glory. And so meditate on his promises every day. Third, ponder who God is in relationship to the world and in relation to your neighborhood and even your work. God always answered Moses' objections by revealing more of his power and more of who he is. The doctrine of God's sovereignty over the world, it can create problems for us. None of us has all the problems solved. On the basis of Exodus 4.11, God intends the, the sovereignty of God to be a very encouraging and even a very practical in doctrine to inspire faith and embolden obedience. And doesn't it? If you are in a situation where you sense God's urging to speak a word from for him from his word, but there is every reason in the natural circumstances to believe it would be a catastrophe, what other doctrine can sustain faith and even obedience except the doctrine that God who brought the world out of nothing has enough control over all things to do something wholly unforeseen and bring good out of the situation? In other words, how else can we trust God with our mouths unless it's true that he works all things together for our good when we trust him, as we see in Romans 8, 28. Therefore, ponder daily who God is and who you are in light of how he has revealed himself in the word. Fourth, pray always that you will be sensitive to his guidance. I know those times when an opportunity to speak is at hand. And of course, pray that he keeps your heart humble and trusting. And so that when the time comes, as we're about to talk, talk about in step five, you're going to be ready. Now, Number five, namely in a moment of opportunity, whether, you know, if this be in the church, in your neighborhood, at work, we, we should pray and ask the Lord. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Hudrick Zwingli, and even other Protestant reformers did not set out to create a new religion, but to bring the medieval Western church back to its biblical foundations. Proof of that can be seen in the fact that the reformers left essentially unchanged the soundest biblical reflection from the 15, uh, 100 years of church history that predated them. In other words, where the church had gotten things right biblically, they left it alone. We see this most fundamentally in the Reformed doctrine of God. 
Reformed uh, theologians affirm the same biblical monotheism that there's one God that was confessed by the apostles and such figures as Athanasius and Augustine. This meant that the reformers were Trinitarian in their view of God. Biblical monotheism is not Unitarianism. It admits that a particular distinctions within the Godhead. And though God is one in his essence, he is three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three co-eternal, co-equal persons show the essence in its entirety possessing all the attributes that make God God now we're going to flesh this out and talk about this more in coming days but let's talk briefly about the full deity of the three persons by considering the God the Father that God as Father is revealed throughout the word we see this in one of our passages today in Exodus 4 through 23 that the Lord revealed himself to Pharaoh as the father of Israel it's in the New Testament that it gives us a fuller picture of God as father now Jesus for example free Frequently referred to God of Israel as his father in John 5:18. It's true that there are ways in which God is uniquely the father of Jesus that we see we're going to see in due time. And yet Jesus reference to God as father, it goes beyond his unique relationship to God. Our savior after all tells us to address God as our father when we pray in Matthew 6:9-13. God stands in fatherly relation to his people. In fact, more specifically, the first person of the Trinity who is Holy God is our Father, Jesus, who is the incarnate Son, and the second person of the Trinity is fully God and our brother, according to Hebrews 2.11. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is fully God and is our helper, as we see in John 14.26 and Acts 5.3-4. Most importantly, the sovereign God of the universe is Father, not, all, not to all people, but only to those who trust in Jesus, as we see in John 1.12-13. And so the one who made all things takes us as his dearly beloved children in Christ. No, there's no better news than this in all of the world. Now, good earthly fathers will do whatever is necessary to protect and even provide for their sons and daughters. If that is true of our earthly fathers, how much more is it true of the Lord? Our Father who cares for us is omnipotent and nothing can stand in the way of his providing for us. So let us thank him this day for meeting all of our needs and let us trust that he's going to continue to do so. You know, Martin Luther, he struggled greatly with the relationship of God's sovereignty to human free will. In fact, one of the greatest uh, books ever written on this subject is The Bondage of the Will. That's from Martin Luther. And when Luther grappled with this very issue, he especially struggled with the Old Testament passages where we read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. One of those is in Exodus 4.21. And when we read all these passages, we tend to think, doesn't this suggest that God not only works through the desire and the action of human beings, but that he actually forces evil upon people. After all, the Bible does say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And when Luther discussed this, he observed that when the Bible says that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, God did not create fresh evil in the heart of an innocent man. Luther said that God didn't harden people by putting evil in their hearts. All that God must do to harden anyone's heart is to withhold his own grace. That is, he gives a person over to himself. Is your heart open to the needs of others? Is it responsive to spiritual things? Ask God to keep your heart soft and even pliable to his divine will and his purposes. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave. My name is Dave, and today is February 23rd, and we've looked at Exodus 4. Until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.